Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Inclusive Class Podcast. Through interviews and discussions, it's our goal to explore the promise and practice of inclusive education. I'm Nicole Erdix and I'm one of your hosts for the show. I'm a parent, inclusion teacher, and creator of the online resource, theinclusiveclass.com. And joining me here this morning is my co-host, Terry Morrow. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Nicole, and welcome to all our listeners. I am Terry Morrow. I'm the author of 50 Ways to Support Your Child's Special Education, and I write about special needs for about.com at specialchildren.about.com. I'd like to mention anybody out there listening to us live that we're not taking phone calls, but the chat room will be open. If you'd like to stop in and suggest a question, I will try to work it in uh, if we have time. And before we have our little uh, pre-show chit-chat here, Nicole, let me just make sure uh, that our guest has gotten in. I see her here, but we didn't hear her here the last time. So, Nancy, are you with us? Yes, I am. Okay, now you can... Now you can sit and listen to us blather for a few minutes. <laughs> get, okay. your, uh, get relaxed, get your cup of coffee. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that you, uh, you're you actually there right now. I just wanted to hear at the beginning. Issues. Yes. As, you know, that seems to be our, we should like like get a little tape made up of that, talking about our technical yeah. issues and just play it at the top of each show, since it the seems bloopers. to always be the case. <laughs> <laughs> As we always say, we are a professional operation. But, uh, all right, the chat room is now open if anyone wants to step in, which nobody ever does. So it sits there empty oh. looking at me. It's but there. I did want to mention at this show something that I, I think I've talked about early on when it first started out, which is um, Dancing with the Stars, which is a big mm-hmm. uh, event in our house. My daughter and I enjoy watching it together. And this season they have had uh, – uh, Paralympic snowboarder Amy Purdy is one of the contestants. She's a, a, a woman who has uh, uh, uses two prosthetic legs. She lost her legs below the knee uh, due to meningitis when she was about 19 and mm-hmm. uh, has gone on, obviously, to be an excellent athlete and now has, I think, been doing a pretty impressive job dancing. And watching the show and especially reading some of the comments of, about it by people has made me think yeah. that it's kind of an interesting comparison to inclusion and what we deal with in inclusion in that when you have a person with different abilities, they're going to have to go about things differently. They're maybe not going to be able to do the exact rules for, say, a particular type of dance. They're going to have to find a way around their particular limitations mm-hmm. and still do something that gives the spirit of the dance and that looks cool but it may not check off all the boxes. And there's been a certain feeling among commenters, a growing feeling, because at the beginning it's all, oh, well, she's very nice, and nobody feels like they should criticize her, and then you start getting the comments that say, well, I'm going to go to hell for saying this, but, and now you're in the full-fledged, well, it's just not fair. She doesn't do this and this and this, and if the other contestants didn't do this, they'd be in trouble. You know, and it's, yeah. Part of the problem is that the the show at the beginning said, we're not going to cut her, cut her any slack. We're going to judge her just like everybody else. And then when she did her dance, they would just it would be five minutes of, oh, you're such an inspiration. That's so amazing that you can do that. And then high scores. So oh, okay. clearly they needed to have said, as I believe that we need to do an inclusion classroom also, you need to very much define if you're going to do things like a differentiated instruction, you need to define what success is for each level. You have to be very clear about the rules. 
and very clear about the fact that, hey, you know what? Dancing on legs that are made of metal has a degree of difficulty to it that you know <laughs> that you have to start yeah. with understanding that degree. There's balance issues. You know, it's hard yeah. to balance. Challenging. Uh, and that mm-hmm. takes a lot of energy. She was saying something like what percentage more energy it takes to dance with that extra balance issue. So mm-hmm. you can't say it's easier. <laughs> it's yeah. just yeah. differently hard. So, yeah. um, you know, she's made it all the way to the finals. Next Monday is the finals, and I urge everybody to watch and to make phone calls and vote for her if that is your um, your particular uh, desire. I'm uh, putting together on my site a, uh, um, a list of all the videos of all her performances all through if people want to catch up with what she's been doing. I think they've been doing a really interesting job of using different types of prosthetics for different types of dances. And uh, like she was doing a quick step in running blades, and she was doing a, um, a contemporary dance with feet that were made for swimmers so that they were pointed. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's been a really interesting thing, I think, of, of a high-profile place for a person with disabilities to show their abilities, and it's made me angry that people have been not understanding that saying you can only be concluded if you can do things exactly like a person without disabilities mm-hmm. is not... Right. <laughs> you know? Also, giving everybody, you know, not, not judging them at all because they have disabilities and just saying you're an inspiration and therefore we love you is also not right. But mm-hmm. saying if you can't do it exactly like everybody else, go home and you agreed to do this and therefore you have to do it like everybody else, that's also not in the spirit of inclusion. So, uh, right. you know, it's been an interesting thing. I think I'm probably going to write more about it, but I just encourage everybody to uh, watch on Monday and see what see what she's doing. I think it's really interesting and worth uh, following. Worth watching. Well, thank you. And that's you. the end of my soapbox. Clunk, clunk. Awesome. <laughs> no, thank you for the rundown. I know that you've talked about it in the past, and um, it's, it's great for us who haven't been following it to get an idea of what is going on and um, yeah. what's hap- you know, how people are responding. So it sounds very interesting. I'm going to get that. Um, article of video, list of videos up on my site today. If you go on to uh, specialturn.about.com and click on today's news, at some point today that list will be on there. So you can watch on YouTube and Hulu all the different uh, dances that she's done. Oh, good. Okay, I'll check that out. Good, thank you. Well, I'm going to then move on to our um, guests today because we have uh, Nancy Pesk with us today, and she is a returning guest for us. Uh, she was back, oh, I think she came on maybe probably about a year ago, I believe, to talk about sensory processing disorder. It's uh, one of her areas of expertise. Uh, she co-authored a very popular book that many of you might know called Raising a Sensory Smart Child. And uh, it t- talks, about anxi- uh, sorry, t- talks about sensory issues with children and how to um, accommodate them and how to you know, cope with, with children's um, sensory Issues and today she's here to talk about anxiety in sensory kids and what we can do to support that because um, you know it it presents itself a little bit differently than in the typically developing child and uh, there's some really great techniques and things that people can use in and out of the classroom to support sensory kids with anxiety. So good morning, Nancy, and welcome back to our show. Good morning, and thank you for having me back. Well, we are happy that you're here, despite a little few technical glitches at the beginning. So, <laughs> we're, yes, we're glad and, to I, and here. I and I love I love the story that that um, you began with because I think that's a really excellent portrayal of 
what what we can fairly expect of our kids with disabilities um and so when when we're in a home situation or a school situation we're not going to say oh uh, oh that's great you're trying that's that's all if if there are expectations that we need for things to work if mm-hmm. a child you, you know has to function within the classroom that mm-hmm. child has to um change somewhat and the classroom has to change somewhat it's not an either right, or right. thing right yeah well i i think i've heard uh several people talk about this before in terms of leveling the playing field what does mm-hmm. that person need to be able to be just as successful as the other learners so what are we going to provide how are we going to accommodate so that person can achieve the same outcomes as everybody else? So if yeah. it's and just leveling it and making sure that everybody has that same opportunity. So, yeah. And defining fairness also. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I also think that when we're doing this, you know, we think in terms of one child in one classroom, but many of us have found uh, – and teachers and therapists have found, too, that when you make the accommodations for the sensory child, for the child with hidden disabilities, you're actually lifting all ships. You're helping all kids. Right. Mm-hmm. All kids have a certain level of anxiety. And so when you create a classroom situation or um, a, a birthday party situation to reduce anxiety in the child who is the canary in the coal mine, the the, the one who is most sensitive to anxiety-provoking situations you're actually helping all all of the kids and i think that's important mm-hmm. to remember it, rather than mm-hmm. getting into the oh we have to make this accommodation for that uh, that child but what about mine you know mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. right right yeah. um now nancy can you uh sort of address anxiety a little bit more and talk about maybe why kids with sensory processing disorder are prone more prone to anxiety than other kids what would sure. you say about that? Okay, so what anxiety is is um, an overactive fight-or-flight system. So in other words, our, our bodies and brains are designed so that in a situation where there's genuine danger, a wild animal is baring its teeth in front of us, our bodies go into an instant reaction. There's hormones and neurotransmitters that go out, and it's, it's like red alert in the firehouse, Right. And so the breathing becomes shallow, the heart rate um, speeds up, and all the blood in your brain starts going to the back, to your more primitive centers for safety, instead of to the front where you make decisions and you think clearly. So we say, Mm -hmm. I was blinded by rage, right? Or I was blinded by fear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really true. We don't don't have any blood up there in the front. It's, It's all in the back. So what anxiety is, is when that system gets triggered much too easily. And it's, it's not just in response to actual danger, it's to perceived danger. Okay. So if I'm a child who, um, who has very sensitive hearing and right. I see someone come in the room who has a voice that hurts my ears because of the quality of that person's voice, Mm-hmm. I, I'm already tensing up. My heartbeat is racing because she's going to talk in that voice that really, really disturbs me. Right now, I'm not actually in danger, but but my nervous system is perceiving danger. 
right, and right, instantly right. reacting. So what right. we're doing with um, helping kids with anxiety is to try to calm that system down. And sensory kids are more prone to anxiety because, remember, they're experiencing the world differently. Their senses are not coming together and giving giving you accurate information, giving them accurate information about what's going on in their bodies and outside of them and putting it together in a way that their nervous system goes, oh, okay, I know what this is. It's not dangerous. It's cool. Mm-hmm. It's just that that sound about to happen, and I'm okay. I know what to do about it. It's this instant physiological nervous system reaction, and mm-hmm. um, that's, that's what's happening, and that's why our kids are more prone to anxiety. So what that means is if we address the sensory issues, the anxiety comes down. If we address the anxiety, the sensory issues are less stressful for the child. So definitely a relationship there mm-hmm. in terms of ways to reduce the anxiety and knowing what's going to trigger that and hopefully teachers in the classroom always, you know, will have that information if a child is in their classroom with sensory issues. And, of course, parents obviously know their kids very well, and hopefully they'll have pinpointed some of those triggers. But if, however, they haven't managed to, I guess, circumvent an, uh, you know, um, anx- an anxiety episode or a panic attack, how can adults uh, help reduce the anxiety in sensory kids? So, as I said, if you're if you're working on a child's sensory issues, what's happening is that they they start interpret their brain and nervous system starts interpreting um, and responding to um, sensory stimulation more typically. So that reduces the anxiety right there. So when the sensory issues come into control under control, then the anxiety comes down. But you can also address the anxiety simply as anxiety as well. So what you're actually doing is training the nervous system to be less reactive, right? Mm-hmm. So um, uh, what, one of the common ways to do it is to help kids use breath because the, because the way we breathe changes when we go into anxiety. So mm-hmm. if kids have simple breath techniques to calm that physiological system and keep the blood mm-hmm. flow going to the front of their brain, then yeah. they can they they can remember oh it, I don't like that sound but I I'm allowed to go put my hands over my ears and go stand by the doorway right if that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if that's acceptable but though that's not going to come to into their mind when they're anxious so mm-hmm. they have to deal with the anxiety first and then they can deal with the stimuli so. Um, if the two of you like, I can teach you a couple of quick breathing techniques that can work for kids and for adults. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Definitely. I We're always looking for practical <laughs> ideas. <laughs> okay. Well, this is my my favorite one because uh, I can do it in a meeting when, when people are irritating me and I can feel my heart starting to beat quickly. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. Um, Let's do that one. <laughs> yeah. So all of so you heading called... into IEP meetings, right? This yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Very good for IEP meetings. Okay, so it's um, in yoga it's called the Ujjayi breath, but I prefer the Darth Vader breath because that's okay. more fun. All right. <laughs> so so here's what you're going to do. And anybody who's listening, um, you can try this as well. So what you're going to do is you're going to be breathing through your nose with your mouth closed, okay? So put your t- lift your tongue so that it is touching the roof of your mouth and... 
draw in breath through your nose just just at the point before you would make the sound of a snore, okay? You know how okay. when people snore? Okay, so they got mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So let's do it once and you will what you're going to feel is that it takes a lot of time to draw in a breath and to let it out and you make a Darth Vader sound like you're in that mask, right? I am El Father Luke. <laughs> <laughs> I can't make the snoring sound. <laughs> okay, so just before it snores, so remember, lift your tongue to your palate, and then as you're drawing in breath, you can you can feel it's kind of hard because you're sort of closing off um, your breathing tube just a little bit. So you have it, it takes time to draw in that breath, and what you're doing is you're slowing down your breath. Okay, oh. you're forcing yourself to slow down your inhalation and exhalation. So you sound like Darth Vader, and you can do it quietly enough in a meeting that people can't hear you. Definitely going to look at you. <laughs> Perhaps if you wore a Darth Vader mask, you could get more done in IEP meetings. <laughs> yes, bring the mask. Yes. Okay, so that's that's Talk fun. About and, and, uh, okay, and uh, uh, and so the other one is. Um, little, little less discreet. And what you would do is you would draw in breath through your mouth, mm-hmm. and you're it, filling your lungs, imagining your lungs like a big balloon. I call it balloon breath. So you're gonna draw in breath through your lungs, and fill them up, and stop, and hold two, three, four, and then let it out through your through your mouth just breathe it in one two three four you do a few of those hold your breath (laughs) i know i know and if you do a few of those what'll what'll happen is that will also um change the heart rate and um and start calming down the system so those are things that you can do in the moment um and then and then there's actually training your system to quiet down and mindfulness meditation is a great one because it works very quickly to retrain the brain i believe it's a total of 27 hours cumulatively and you can see changes in the brain in an mri and even little kids can learn how to do it yeah um, so um, doing a little mindfulness meditation every day. Uh, in my mm-hmm. school district, we've introduced mindfulness meditation. I think the kids do a total of about three, four hours over the course of many sessions. I think it's like 15 sessions. So cumulatively mm-hmm. about two and a half hours. And a year later, they're still using the technique. They're still talking about it. Um, yeah. It's really made a major difference in a short time. And I think we did it as young as kindergarten in our district. So that's oh, wow. another great one. They're going to put yeah. therapists out of a job when they get older. <laughs> they're going to already know how to self-regulate. <laughs> yeah, and that's another great word, self-regulation. We're regulating yes. our nervous system's response to stimuli. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. that's great. Yeah. Thanks for that's the That's great to be able to teach those self-regulation techniques to both kids and to parents mm-hmm. because... You know, sometimes I see that when I get ratcheted up, it ratchets my set up. So it's like, you know, if I could stay calm, a lot of the meltdowns in our house wouldn't happen. But yeah. uh, 
sometimes, of course, though, even with all the, the deep breathing and the self-regulation techniques and all of that, uh, you do wind up with a child who is having uh, an anxiety attack and, and a meltdown, usually in the worst possible, most public place. Um, but even at home, it's difficult to deal with. What do you do when the time for the deep breathing has passed and the meltdown is in full swing? What can we do to help our kids in that situation? Yes, quarterbacking is always easier, isn't it? <laughs> Gee, I shouldn't have dragged <laughs> it to three stores when he didn't have a nap. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, it's always something like that. I know you wanted those little things that Hermione has in, in um, Harry yes. Potter that switches you back to a previous point in time. Why did I do this? Yes, yes. yes. Um, so, no, we don't, we don't have access to that handy-dandy tool. So um, the first thing, of course, is safety. Safety for that child and safety for other people around them. If you think yeah. if somebody goes into a grand mal seizure, what do you do? It's mm-hmm. first and foremost, it's safety. Um, right. You're not going to have a conversation with your child. You don't need to have a conversation with the people around you. What is going on? Yeah. You need to discipline. <laughs> yeah, that has to just like <laughs> not be yeah. part of the equation. And then you, <laughs> you focus on the self-calming techniques. Um, um, and sometimes it's just sitting with the child. And um, if if they are comforted by being held, you have to tune into what works for your child. I know in my book, Raising a Sensory Smart Child, we, we quote a woman whose daughter needed to be held a certain way, not not swaddled tightly. I mean, she was about four or five years old then, but held held firmly but loosely. And that type of hold is what um, calmed her child. Mm-hmm. So it, it, you have to know what what is calming for your child, and sometimes it is just time and and as you say, sort of being the Buddha next to them, just being quiet right. next to them, and modeling to them it's okay. Um, things aren't things aren't that bad. We can calm ourselves. It is incredibly yeah. comfortable, comforting to your child to see you being calm. It actually changes <laughs> the energy, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the hard part, isn't it? But you know what's yeah. too bad is I, with my son, uh, a hard hug, a hard hold from behind always calmed him down, and also pushing down on his shoulders always calmed him down. But we're in an environment now, I always used to, to tell his paraprofessionals to do that, and they would tell me that they're not allowed to. They're not allowed to touch, they're not allowed to hug, they're not allowed to do all these things that, you know, can be abusive in some circumstances, but in other circumstances are incredibly helpful. So, you know, it's too bad that oftentimes those tools are not available because that is something that often can be very comforting and calming. Yeah. You know, you don't want to do a chokehold, but sometimes just wrapping your arms around from behind is good. Yes, and, and you pointed out a good challenge is that when our kids go out into school, what works at home for their self-calming may not translate. So there was a boy with Asperger's who would hug his dog while he couldn't bring his dog to school. Now, sometimes you can. You can have a service dog, but um, (laughs) that wasn't going to fly. The other thing he did is if he could go outside and sit under a tree, nature Mm -hmm. can be incredibly calming for our kids, right? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, the paraprofessional doesn't want to go 
out and be alone with him because of fears of, you know, what could happen if sure. an ABD child yeah. is, you know, alone with you and what would he say? And I said, well, could could he stand in the vestibule watching the boy <laughs> up the tree? Because he, he really, the difference yeah. between that child when he wasn't on a tree and, you know, and, and when he'd been there for two minutes was night and day. Right. Um, another one was, and my son used to do this a lot when he, he had poor self-regulation at two and three. They'll lower mm-hmm. themselves to the ground yeah. um, and lie there. And I know mm-hmm. that's inconvenient. You have to walk around. <laughs> Somebody has to, like, you know, be the safety block saying, walk around, child on floor. Um, but if... You know, if that's self-calming and you're panicking mm-hmm. about it, oh, it's a problem, and you try to pull that kid up, yeah. then he's going to start swinging. Oh, so, oh yeah. You can yeah. never so pick that to, kid up. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. the Getty legs. You know, that's not going to happen. No. Yeah. No, so you have to you have to keep these things in mind. I mean, do what works yeah. when they're young and they're not in school yet, but these are right. the sort of things that you have to think about as they're going into school. Will yeah. Will the teacher be able to implement this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or a version and of you, it. Yeah. You know, I hear so mm-hmm. many stories about, you know, there's a lot about restraint and seclusion now. And they, those can be terrible things. But oftentimes the things I see people criticizing are things that I know have been helpful for my son. Like, mm-hmm. you know, a calming thing for him is to get in a body sock. You know, <laughs> And yet mm-hmm. if you have a kid in the hallway sitting in a body sock, people are going to think that looks abusive. He used to be able to fortunately go into the therapist's room and do that. Or sitting like in a little little play tent was always really comforting to him. And then they said they can't have the play tent anymore because it appears to be, you know, a punishment. So mm-hmm. this is when, as they go into school, especially in our sort of heightened uh, time now of, of concern over abuse, uh, the, the, the preventing the thing from starting in the first place becomes even more important. Yeah. <laughs> the changing the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something you want to work on the teachers with, and so that you don't, they don't get to that point at least at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's where the sensory diet comes in too, because your child is not going to go all all day with, <laughs> without some kind of snack <laughs> of yeah. sensory withdrawal or sensory movement. So with my mm-hmm. son, we would take him to school early, and he would get exercise yeah. outside, and then he he right. would was self-regulated enough to know what he needed to do at recess and sometimes he would stay in at recess because that's what he needed to do to Mm self-calm so Mm -hmm. um, another mom would take her son home it was a neighborhood school would take him home for lunch because even though you know they want the kids to socialize it's like but he has to be a part of the playground well if he's going to be falling apart all day because he didn't have that 20 minutes alone with his sandwich at right you know at home with the dog then that's mm-hmm. just not going to work. Yeah. 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 If his being he's part of the playground is him being out of control on the playground, you're not doing him any favors. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, do, you, do you find that girls are more prone to anxiety than boys are? In general, that's true. Um, but but I think that we, we need to remember that um, there are cultural reasons for this as well as, physiological reasons. Women are more Mm -hmm. prone to anxiety and depression overall, although it may be one of those things where we're not seeing what's depression in in boys, you know, that a boy who is irritable and angry might might be, uh, you know, anxious and depressed. 
So um, yeah, I'm not altogether convinced um, that is that is the the general consensus. But I kind of mm-hmm. roll together anxiety, depression, um, and anger into one because it all comes back to your amygdala, amygdala which yeah. is the center in the back of your brain where you're having these strong emotions in response to something that feels threatening. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think maybe girls are more uh, likely to articulate it and use language to talk about anxiety. Even even my daughter, who has some language delays, is able to talk about her anxiety. Whereas I think with boys, it's more behavioral. If your kid is suddenly behaving in a squirrely way, you need to stop and say, "Is there something that that's is there some anxiety causing thing going on?" Or you know, if you do that behavior analysis, you can sometimes see that it's an expression, an expression of anxiety and depression and um, other emotions that is just not coming out in words. It's coming out in behaviors. Yeah, and, and if you can attach words to behaviors, yes. uh, I mean to experiences, it helps. So mm-hmm. um, to, to give your child words for, you know, what are you feeling in your body and, and um, helping them to observe what it is in their body. Um, and, and I think that's important too because we need um, we we need to have self awareness and, and to mm-hmm. feel that we're starting to get anxious. We need to know yes. what that is and identify it. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's our school bell saying that our time is up because I it, it's I enjoy talking about this and you've got a lot of great uh, advice for our listeners. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Nancy. And I would like to thank our listeners for tuning into our program this morning. We will be back next week at the same time with guest Amanda Morin to give tips on how to navigate the special education system. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where Nicole tweets under the name inclusive underscore class, and I am at Mamatude, M-A-M-A-T-U-D-E. Nancy, are you on uh, Twitter? I'm on Twitter as Sensory Smarts. I'm more active on Facebook, and our page is Raising a Sensory Smart Child. Okay, and finally, you can download our past podcasts for free uh, on my blog. If you go to uh, Tiny Earl slash The Inclusive Class, you can find that. And uh, goodbye, everybody, and have a great week.